Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. 1 John chapter number 4 is where we're at, and let's go ahead and read verses 10 to 21. So we're going to read a decent chunk, and we're going to try to understand it all. If you're new, a heads up, we spend a good chunk of our Sundays reading the Bible and then understanding what it says and not just making up our own message, but actually trying to say, this is what it says, let's understand what it says. And uh, sometimes that's novel to people, but we feel like that should just be church. So here we go, verse number 10, read it with me. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word that means that he covers our sins or he takes away the punishment for our sins. Verse number 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to, what's the next word? love one another no man has seen god at any time but if we what's the next word love one another god dwells in us and let's try it more than three of you this time his his what is perfected in us all right that was decent it was decent hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of a spirit we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the what? The love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but... Perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. If we love him, it's because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Let's take a minute, I'm going to pray and just invite the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning, and then we're going to look at the cause and the effects of love. Lord, we pause for just a moment, first of all, to say thank you and to express our praise and our gratitude for who you are in our lives, that you would love us, that you would die for us. Uh, the choir just sang about that you would give of, of your life's blood for us. We thank you for this, we praise you for this, and Lord, we pray that we would understand in a deeper and in a fuller way the implications of your love for us this morning. I ask that this would become very profound in our lives, that the words would jump off of the page and that you would challenge us and that we would be more loving people because of our time spent in your church this morning. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the cause and then the effects of love. So first is the cause. Uh, John makes this very clear. He says in verse number 10, Here's love, uh, not that we love God, but that he loved us, saying God was the initiator, God was the pursuer. He says in verse number 19, we love him because 
he first loved us. So what is the cause? Well, the because is because he loved. So the cause of love is, in fact, God himself. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with the question, maybe not, it's a little bit philosophical, of why do we love, right? As humans, why do we enjoy this thing called love, and why would love manifest itself in these really profound ways where we would sacrifice for people because of our love, that we would at times love our enemies, or we love even a child who maybe is wayward or against us or begins to fly in our face or say, I hate you or you, whatever. And we still love even in those moments. Why do we do this? Because you really don't observe this sort of love in the animal kingdom. This, this, is, this is unique to us. Uh, this is something that atheists will struggle to come up with an answer for. You know, in a, in a Darwinian theory, why in the world, why would we uh, survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog world, why would we love? Why would this come out of us? And, and the best guess that people will have if they, if they believe that, you know what, we just evolved from some primordial ooze at some point in time, and this comes out of us, you know, our moral compass and our love and our, and our desire to last and think about eternity and our desire to be creative. These things just evolved over time because somehow they were good for the community. You know, my sacrificial love for you doesn't really serve me, but if everybody does it communally, then it'll serve us. And they'll come up with theories as to where did love come from? Where, how did this come upon us? Now those theories, even if they were true, which they're not, they'll still fall short on why someone ought to love. They'll, they'll never be able to tell you, here's why you should, here's maybe why you could or why it would be beneficial, but they'll never give you a sense of oughtness Whereas Christianity is very different. And Christianity will say, we love, first of all, because of God. We're made in the image of God, a creator God who loves, designed us in his image, and made us with the capacity to love. This is why anyone can love to some degree, because we're made in his image. A loving God makes us, and as such, we are loving people. Now, Christianity will go further and will say the only way that you really will love God is because he initiates and he loves you. He pursued, he sacrificed, he stepped up to the plate, he loved you, and so because he loved you, now you can love him back, now you can take that love and use it as fuel to love other people. And the defining characteristic of God in this passage, according to John, is love. That's why he can say on multiple occasions, God is love. And the defining quality of that love is gracious sacrifice. That he would die as a propitiation for our sins. This is something that uh, many preachers and authors and hymn writers over the years have struggled to come up with words on how do we even talk about the love of God in a way that is fitting. How do we put words around this? I like what the, what the old hymn says. and, and it, it says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's a very beautiful way to say we don't have enough pens and we don't have enough paper and we don't have enough words to accurately describe the love of God. The love of God that is given to us just as we're, we're made in his image so we can love, but if we're Christians, we know his love in a new and in a profound way. And here's what John will go on to say. He will say, if you know the love of God, then that will have some effects in your life. 
There's this beautiful thing called the love of God. And this will cause you to do some stuff that is different. So there are four effects that he lays out in this text that will be the effects of love. Effect number one is a ripple effect. And look if you would in verse number 10. He says, here's love, not that we love God, but God loved us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Therefore, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, what is he saying? He's saying if you've experienced this love and it, the cause has come upon you, then the effect of that should be that you love other people. Verse 20 and 21 is saying the same thing. If you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, not true. You're lying. How are you going to love God who you can't see if you can't love your brother who you can see? Verse 21, the commandment that we have from him, he who loves God should love his brother also. So what is he saying? The effect of God's love, if you've experienced it, should ripple out to other people around you. If God loved you and you believe in him, then other people will feel that. And this is, this is uh, very indicative of what the Bible would say. God is merciful to us, so we should be merciful. God forgives us, so we should forgive. God is holy, so we should be holy. God loves, so we should love. And I know that if you've been here through the series, as we walked through the book of 1 John verse by verse, this is probably old hat by now because John has hit love over and over and over and over again. And I kept asking myself, am I going to be able to come up with new words for love? Because we've hit this topic so many times in this, in this text. But I keep coming up with new words. We are supposed to, not just supposed to, commanded to love. And love in a way that we felt from God. I heard one pastor give an illustration of a, of a little girl. She was 11 years old, and she had an 8-year-old brother. And as an 11-year-old girl and an 8-year-old boy oftentimes would do, they fought incessantly. They just, they bickered and they fought over every little thing. They squabbled, squabbled, squabbled. And the 8-year-old's birthday came along, and the girl decided that she was going to make a birthday card for her little brother. And so she handcrafted it, and she wrote a message inside of it. And the dad was, was pretty surprised at this. But inside the card, the girl expressed her love for her brother. And she said genuinely and sincerely, Happy birthday to my now nine-year-old brother. I am so glad to have a brother to love. I'm so glad God gave me you. P.S. Do not read this out loud or I will twist your head off. <laughs> now, if you're a parent, you can relate with that, right? My children, do they love each other or do they not love each other, right? I love you, but I'll twist your head off. And we can, we can laugh at that in adolescent stages where people have not grown and matured and really begun to model out what is true, sacrificial, unconditional, giving love. And that's something that you do have to grow into. But that should not be the way that we love if we're Christians. But I know Christians that love this way. You know what? I love you, but do blank and I'll twist your head off. Hey, I love you, but I'm going to fight with you all the time, and I'm going to squabble with you all the time, and we're going to be at each other's throat all the time, but I love you. That shouldn't be the case. If you're, a, if you're an 11-year-old junior hire who's catty, okay, fine. We'll wink at it a little bit. If, if you are an adult, or even if you're just a Christian, no. That's, that's not how we love. I understand not everyone is easy to love, right? There are these porcupine people that exist. That, that are tough, that you just kind of want to leave them alone because their, their quills of sarcasm or their quills of selfishness just stick in you every time you get close to them. I, I know they're there, 
but that doesn't mean that doesn't even though they are tough to love that doesn't mean that you get a hall pass to not love them because John did not say here's a great suggestion love each other that's not what he said that's a commandment and commandment means and honestly the fact that John would have to say this so many times in his book leads us to the reality that this may not be easy that this may be difficult the fact that you have to command me to do this may mean that it's not always intuitive to me, right? Which is different than what culture will teach you because culture will teach you love is like this feeling. It just kind of floats upon you like a butterfly. And when it lands on you, you'll feel love and Cupid's arrow has struck your heart. And man, where did this come from? I don't know. I just love at first sight. It's, poof, there it was. And I love. And then I don't know where did it go? I don't know. We fell out of love. It went away. The arrow lost its poison. I don't, what happened? Like love is this thing that just happens. It just kind of, it comes on me or it goes away from me and I have no control over it. It's very whimsical. No, that's not love. Love is choosing to do what is in the interest of someone else even though it may cost me personally. Love is Jesus choosing to go to a cross and die for our sins even though it was going to cost him immensely. It's putting someone else's good before your own. It's choosing. It's a command that you can obey. And John says, here's the command. It's not love them, footnote, okay? Down here, uh, except for when, uh uh-uh, love. Love them even when they're tough. And if you're halfway honest, you're a porcupine person yourself, right? I know they're hard to love, but you're hard to love sometimes too. Let's not act like you're just a warm, cuddly teddy bear every second of every day. You have issues. You rub them the wrong way. You've stuck a few of your quills in someone else before. And didn't you want them to love you? Sure. Didn't it feel good when God loved you, even though you were sinful and you weren't all put together? Aren't you thankful for that? If you're thankful for that, then love other people. Have a ripple effect. This really was at the core of what Jesus talked about in Matthew uh, chapter number 18 when he talked about the servant who was forgiven so much but then he wouldn't forgive the other person, right? The the servant that had these 10,000 talents worth of debt that that he was let go of, he was released from, this debt that was so enormous. It was his way of saying like it's it's a profound debt that you can never, like it's, it's too much money. Who wanted mercy, who wanted more time, who wanted, could you just give me some more time to, to, to pay off the debt? And the person who had loaned him the money, who, when you're in the position to loan someone that much money, you're not normally a pushover, right? That's why loan sharks exist, but loan bunnies and, and, and loan puppies don't exist. The person who loaned him the money said, you know what, you don't have a day to pay it off, and you don't have a week to pay it off. You don't got to pay it off, period. It's done, it's forgiven. Imagine how that guy felt to not have the weight of all of this debt that had to have consumed his life, that was heavy, heavy, hanging over his head. To have it released and gone, right? And then he walks out. And there's someone else who owes him like a hot dog. And he grabs him by the throat and says, give me the money. Wait, give me time, I'll pay you. No, and he throws him in prison. And Jesus didn't say hot dog, right? I'm inventing that. But $10, you know? The small amount of money, and Jesus says, does that make sense? 
that someone could be forgiven so much and loved so greatly, but fail to forgive and love someone else? And the, the obvious answer is, well, of course, it doesn't make sense. That's unfitting. And he says, that's you. When you experience this, this ocean of love being poured into your heart, that he would love you and forgive all of your sin, not just the ones that they know about or they know about or they know about or they know about, but the, all the ones that you know about, even some of the ones you forgot you did, all of them, that he would take them all away, all of the debt, gone. And then someone would do one thing to you or two things to you. And it may have hurt real bad and it may have been very grievous, but you grab them by the throat and demand your pound of flesh. He says, it doesn't work that way. When God loves us and we feel his love, he's saying there's a ripple effect that we love other people. We don't just love him back. We love other people as well, right? Do you love other people? Do you put their interest first? Are you willing to sacrifice on their behalf? Or are you wanting to build your own little kingdom all about you, all of, you know, serve me, help me, here's what I want all the time? Do you love them? We should love really everyone. But we should especially love the brethren. I dare say that as a church family, we should definitely love each other, right? How many of you agree with that, we should love each other? Okay, look at the person next to you and say, I love you. Go ahead, right now. Didn't that feel good? Didn't, didn't that feel great? If you're dating and you haven't said I love you yet, maybe look at the other way, okay? I don't want to make an awkward moment. Love each other, right? Now look, I'll be honest. I, I feel like I won the pastoral lottery when, when you guys said, hey, you know, go ahead, be pastor here, because you're a loving bunch of people. You really are. And I tell you this all the time. I think we could do better and we could grow in love, but I am, I'm constantly amazed at how well you love each other. We're not great at everything, but we, we're pretty good at that, especially when people are down on their luck or they're going through a tough time. I, we rally and we help each other all the time. So I do want to thank you. I do want to commend you for that. But at the same time, let's all get better. Let's all decide if we know the love of God and that cause has come upon us, then let's have the effect, the ripple effect, the love of the people. Secondly, and you may miss this, there's a reflection effect. So I love other people, but then if you look in verse number 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so ought we to love one another. So we demonstrate his love to other people. No man has seen, any God, has seen God at any time. Now, more to come on that in a minute. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected or matured in us. So when we practice the love of God, this is perfected, meaning the ripened fruit of his love uh, comes to bear in our life because now we're loving. His goal in loving us was not just so that we would feel love. It was so that we would love other people. Verse 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. Now, quick note, he doesn't say there he's given us his spirit, although John does say that in other places, and it's true. He says he's given us of his spirit, or out of his spirit, meaning God has given us this love from his spirit. Love is the first fruit of the spirit. And what he's saying on the whole is that you are given love via God, via his demonstration of love for you in the cross, even through his spirit, and we are to have that mature in us, and we are to love other people. But when we do that, people see God in us. 
This is why that little phrase, no man has seen God at any time, is in there. At first glance, it can seem disjointed. And be like, we're talking about love, and you just threw in here, like, God's invisible. Okay, thank you. Like, what does this have to do with anything? But what he's trying to say is that God, who was historically revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, now is revealed via the indwelling presence of his spirit in the manifestation of love in us. He is revealed through us as we love one another. And that people actually see God in you when you show the love of God to other people. Now, don't, don't hear me, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. He isn't saying that you become, you know, a little God or you're a demigod. He is saying, though, that you are now reflecting God when you love other people. And although they can't see him, they can indirectly see him through you. This actually makes sense of the little phrase in verse number 17 as well, where he talks about love and it says, because as he is and he is love, so are we in this world. Meaning God slapped a postage stamp on you and shoved you as a Christian back into the world and said, go show my love. Go be like me. Go love them. And it is our job to reflect that. And even though they may not understand that they're seeing God when they see his love in us, to show them the love of God. G. Campbell Morgan, an old British preacher, had five sons. And all five of his sons grew up to be preachers as well. And G. Campbell was still living, and there was a time where someone came to the house, and he was there, and his five sons were there, all six preachers. And they sat down and said, I have a question. Who is the best preacher? And, you know, I'm, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Who's going to be the best one? But like a little choir, unanimously, all six of them said, Mom is the best preacher. And even though Mom had never preached a sermon directly, in, in a formal way, People may not have realized that they were seeing her preaching lived out through the boys, but the boys understood mama's preaching is living out through us, right? And in the same way, a lost world, they may not put two and two together that I'm seeing the love of God display, or they may, I don't know. But we understand that I am putting and pushing the love of God on display as I love you, I'm wanting you ultimately not to see me or to praise me, but to see the love of God manifest in my life, right? There's this, there's this old little poem that says that you're writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by deeds that you do and words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true, so what is the gospel according to you? And that's the truth. That if you have someone who is far from God or away from God, or opposed to God that you work with, you probably are not going to be able to convince them with your words to pick up the Bible and to read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John. But they will read the Gospel of Nathan and the Gospel of Brad and the Gospel of Dennis and the Gospel of John. Not the John of the Bible, that John. They'll read your Gospel. They'll see if the love of God is manifest in you or not. They will take note. Oftentimes they will take very meticulous notes if you're a Christian. Ever notice this? Man, you let Bob down the hall get away with murder, but I do the slightest little thing and you rub it in my face because I'm a Christian and that's unfitting for a Christian. It's kind of fair. I, I know you don't like it too much, but it's kind of fair. 
They're trying to read the gospel according to you. So show them, reflect the love of God. Third principle, third effect, is the resolute effect. This starts to get to kind of the core of what John is saying here in this particular passage. Verse 13, here's what he says. Hereby, and underline this phrase if you're in the habit of this, know we that we dwell in him and he in us. Okay, now think about this for a minute. Here is how I know, or we know, that God lives in me and I live in God. That's a big statement. Here's how I know that I live in God and God lives in me. Do tell. Well, because he has given us of his spirit. Given us what of his spirit? Love. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. We have double hold of it. We know. We're, we're not agnostic. We believe. We're not unbelievers. We know and believe the love of God. God is love. Listen to this. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. You are dwelling in God and God is dwelling in you if you're in love. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Not, uh, excuse me, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What is he saying? He is saying, here's how I could have confidence. Here is how I could have boldness. Here's how I could be firm and resolute on the day of judgment. To stand before a holy God, before the bar of God's justice, and give an account of my life. How could I possibly not be scared of that day? How could I possibly be firm in that day? How could I possibly be bold in that day? The idea of standing before God. Well, here's how. His love is made perfect. Here's how I know that I'm in him. His love. When his love is matured in me or made perfect in me, when it's brought to the place that it's meant to be, away from just words and into deeds, as John would say, when now it's manifested itself in loving action, that should produce an assurance of my salvation, that should produce a confidence, that should produce a no-so salvation. To where someone can say, not because they're cocky, not because they're arrogant. This has nothing really to do with me, it has everything to do with God. He loved me. He died for me. I'm not, a, I'm not a good person. I'm not a put-together person. I'm not a special person at all. But he loved me, and he saved me, and his love is flowing out of me. That should produce assurance. And don't we need that? Think about it. There are times where question marks start to float around your brain, aren't there? Man, am I really a Christian if I was, would I, would I have done that? I went back to the empty well again. Or you read something, or you hear something, or you watch a movie, or pick up the Da Vinci Code, or you're a uh, uh, college student and you go to Religion 101. Really? Oh, I didn't. What, what about that? What about this? And all of a sudden there's these question marks and, the, and these doubts. What do I do with those doubts? How do I argue with those doubts? Well, one of the ways you argue with those doubts is you go back to the love of God being manifest in your life or not. What do I do when I have doubts? Because times are tough, right? Man, it has been a season. It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And I am praying and saying, God, give me a break. But it's like he's on vacation. I just, it won't let up. Is, is this real? Does he really hear my prayers? Does he really answer my prayers? Like, don't we all live in these places sometimes? 
How do I assure my heart? How do I have boldness? How do I have a no-so salvation even when there's doubts? One of the ways is I look at the love of God. This is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones did, and I think the illustration is so fitting. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher in the uh, early 1900s, and uh, he was a man of means. He was a man of prestige. Uh, He was a doctor, and out of medical school, he actually became the assistant to the physician of the royal family. And he had connections. He spent most of his days amongst the intelligentsia of the world. Uh, His social standing and his economic standing were very high in a day and age where the socioeconomic boundaries were very, very prevalent. And he, in his late 20s, early 30s, we don't know the exact date, but he became a Christian. And shortly thereafter became a pastor. And Lloyd-Jones moved, actually, to this poor fishing village for his first pastorate off the coast of Wales. And there he just ministered to this little community that didn't have a lot. And Lloyd-Jones says that there was this season where he was plagued by doubts of, are you really a Christian? Do you really know Jesus? Are you just, are you making this all up in your head? That sort of stuff. And whether that was his own brain or whether that was, you know, some sort of devil messing with him, he's, I don't know, but they were there nonetheless. He said the way that he reasoned himself out of that to a spot of certainty and confidence from doubt was that he he backed up and said, okay, I'm going to ask myself this question. Why is it that I find more joy to sit down with that poor widow of this little fisherman village in a house that is drafty and cold with not much of her to offer me anything to eat or drink? I find more joy sitting down with her and talking about the Lord Jesus and our relationship with God than I ever found sitting in these wood-paneled enclaves in London with the roaring fire and all the amenities and all the people of my same social and economic standing. How in the world could I possibly find more joy with her than there if I was not a Christian? How could I fake that? How could I invent that? And it's it's brilliant reasoning. It's what John intended for you to do with this passage, to say, if that love for other people and that love for other Christians exists in my heart, where did that come from? Who put that there? If it's there in that same way, then that should be able to produce this resolute standing and this boldness in my life that I, in fact, know the Lord Jesus and I do not have to be plagued by doubt and fear. Fourthly and lastly is this relaxation effect. Verse 17 says we can have boldness in the day of judgment, right? But then it says, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So we're going to have to spend a minute and you're going to have to hang with me, okay? Because we have to thread the needle carefully here. What does it mean that there is no fear in love? Is it saying that fear and love are water and oil and those two can't go together? That if my children fear the punishment they're about to get because of their misbehavior, that I don't love them as a parent? If I have any fear at all, that that's unfitting, that if I know the love of God, I will never fear anything, anyone, ever, period? What does this mean? Doesn't the Bible say that the fear of God 
is the beginning of wisdom? Doesn't the Bible say that I should work out my own salvation with fear and trembling? So which is it? Do I have fear of God or does God's love cast out fear? Right? So this is why context is so important when you study the Bible and you don't just take a verse and slap it on your coffee mug and then read it to everybody and, and treat that verse in isolation from the surrounding context. Because you need the previous verse that talks about judgment, right? What John is talking about is that a Christian who knows the love of God will not have fear of judgment or condemnation or you could even say hell. That a Christian will not fear that. He is not saying don't have the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. He is saying you won't fear that. Now that, okay, let's just say that. I am I'm not supposed to as a Christian fear the day of judgment. That can get a little tricky. Because if I read my Bible correctly, it, it says at multiple points in time that I maybe should fear the day of judgment. Paul said in Romans that the, that the unbelieving world, they don't know better, they don't even know to fear. And because they don't know to fear, almost like a child who is unaware of the danger that is surrounding them in that car coming down the street or in that you know, animal, that they, they don't know sometimes to fear. And he goes on to say, that the Holy Spirit of God, and even some common sense, if you start to apply it, will begin to teach your heart to fear. This is why Jesus would say, do not fear them that have the power to kill the body in death. But I say unto you that you should fear him that has the power after death to condemn you to hell. Now, those are strong words from Jesus, but Jesus says, don't fear the executioner in this life. Fear what could happen to your soul. Okay, so am I supposed to fear and have this terror of what it would be like to stand before God's justice, or am I not? And the answer is it depends. It depends on if you're a Christian or not. It depends on if you confess, as John said in the middle of this text, that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that you put your faith and your trust in him. It, it hinges on that. Because if you have not, and I know that this is not popular, it's not in vogue, a lot of pastors won't tell you this, but it's my job to tell you the truth. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about fear. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you should be scared. But if you do know Jesus as your Savior, you should not be scared. Because the Bible will tell you that the wrath of God is removed. That's what the whole propitiation for sins is about. The wrath is gone. The condemnation is gone. The judgment is gone. And with that, the fear should be gone. That if you know God, then you should not be terrified. You should not pillow your head at night and wonder what's going to happen or what will become of me or, or, or will this be good for me? Will I, will I make it to heaven or will I not? What, what, is it hell? Maybe, I don't know, maybe purgatory. Maybe that's going to happen. What, what's, that, that God doesn't want you there. He wants you to have a confidence and a boldness and a lack of fear to be able to say, you know what? No, I know his love. I know I'm saved. And that means that I know that heaven is my home. I know that I have eternal life. I know that I do not have condemnation. I know that I do not have wrath. I know that's not for me. So I do not have to be in fear. I don't have to cower my way through life. I don't have to have all these question marks. I don't have to treat life like a Scooby-Doo episode where I'm scared all the time. 
I can let that go. And I can have this peace. Why? Because his love casts out that fear. When I, when I know the love of God for me, most specifically in his death on the cross, that love comes into my heart and it grabs fear by, by the collar and says, hey, buddy, I don't know where you're going, but you don't belong here, and throws them out of my heart. This is, this is why Paul then could write in Romans, there's, there's a spirit that's given us, but not the spirit of bondage that leads to fear. This is why Paul could tell Timothy that he should not be given over to the spirit of fear, but of what? Love and power and a sound mind. So as a Christian, the point is, there should be this confidence, there should be this firm footing, there should be this standing that causes you to relax and not fear. I think Newton said it best in maybe the most famous Christian song of all time, Amazing Grace, right? There's this little line that is so profound where Newton says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Only by the grace of God did I begin to fear the judgment that was there, but it was also grace my fears relieved. It taught me to fear, then it took away my fear because I put my faith in Jesus, right? And here's what John says. God, God is the cause of love. And because he's loved us, we should love each other. We should reflect his love to the world around us. We should be resolute, bold, and confident, and we should not fear. Now, I'm almost done. Almost is subjective. It means anywhere from 60 seconds to 10 minutes. Not 10 minutes, not really. Part of the problem with this is that we oftentimes will begin to view God's love through the filter of other people's love. I don't know how many children of the 60s would be familiar with the folk band Peter, Paul, and Mary, but... Uh, the first service, they were very familiar. Raise of hands. Who knows Peter, Paul, and Mary? Okay, well, more than I thought. They, they had a lot of uh, chart toppers back in the day, but one of them, one of their more famous songs was The Lemon Tree. And in The Lemon Tree, a dad tells his son, quote, these words. This is the, the anthem of the song. Don't put your faith in love, my boy, my father said to me. I fear you'll find that love is like the lovely lemon tree. Lemon tree, very pretty. The lemon flower is sweet. But the fruit of the poor lemon, it's impossible to eat. Meaning, love looks good. Love smells good. But it's bitter when it's all said and done. And the song goes on to say that this boy experienced it in the most profound way, that he found love. And it was like the lemon tree. It was pretty. It was sweet. But his love left him in a moment, gone, forsook him. And then he learned that dad's words were true, that love is bitter, that you can't trust it, that it's, it's kind of a mirage. Now, that's not what John says. But the problem is that is our experience sometimes with humans. Let's be honest. Some of the people that were supposed to love us the most and the fiercest and the most unconditional are the people who have given us our biggest wounds. Mom, dad, brother, sister, spouse, that you were supposed to be there and you bailed. You were supposed to love 
but you were full of wrath and terror and were abusive. You promised and you vowed, and in a moment you cheated on me and you were gone. And if we're not careful, we'll start to filter God's love through that and say, I couldn't trust them, and I couldn't trust them, and I couldn't trust them, so how could I ever trust you? But the opposite has to happen. For you to say, no, this is an altogether different love. This was proved in the cross. This is not lemon tree love that I've experienced from other people in my life. This is different. And not only is it different, I want to feel this difference and I want to give it. I know that they hurt me when they were supposed to love me and they hurt me when they were supposed to love me, but I will not let that be me. The people that I'm supposed to love, I will be there. I will step up. I'm not going to be the greatest source of pain and frustration that, that they, I felt this. I'm not going to have them feel that. If I'm a, if I'm a dad, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to put them first. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to step up. If I'm a spouse, I'm a spouse. I know that her greatest pains came from the men in her life, but not me, not on my watch. I will be there. I will be sturdy. I will take the love of God that is rock solid, that is not bitter, and I will not be the source of that. I'll let his love flow through me. May this be a, a moment where you don't say, yeah, sounds good, but if you only knew the people in my life, I can't buy it. No, flip it. Buy it. Feel it. Know God's love is real and then show it to the world around you. Don't we need people like this in our culture? Don't we want people like this in our lives to lead us? Don't we crave this for real, authentic love from people? Then give it. And if you're a Christian, who better to give it? Because you felt it and you've known it. You've shared in it because of the love of God. May we, more than any group of people to ever walk the planet, may we be people that say, look, we're going to love in a real way, in a mature way, in a perfect way. We're going to do this and we're going to do it right. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look just briefly at this passage of Scripture. And I pray that you would help us to understand your love. May it become richer and fuller and sweeter and deeper as the days go on. And may that push us to love others in a richer, fuller way. Lord, may we be people that are confident before you, people that are sturdy and secure, ultimately because of your love and your sacrifice. Lord, I pray this for us. I pray this for me, for my family. I pray this for my church family. God, I have to think that, that the people John is describing in this text would be great people to work with, would be great people to have in the family, would be great people to have as neighbors. So God, help us in this. May the gospel that we write be read aloud and proudly by a world around us. May they see something different. May they see something infectious and contagious in the love that we have from you. Lord, I ask this in your name. This morning, I want you to remain in the spirit of prayer as we end the service. I want you to just talk to the Lord. I think at the very least, if you know Jesus as your Savior, thank him for loving you. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for a sacrifice. Express that praise and that gratitude. If you know Jesus as your Savior, 
but you have been nursing grudges and you've been holding them by the throat for their hot dog they owe you, would you lay that down? Like confess it as wrong and say, this is not right, this is not fitting. I'm done with this. Lay it down and walk away from it. I, I know it's easy to be mad at them. I know that they're tough to love. I know. But that doesn't mean that you should not love them. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then I want to invite you to do it right now. The Bible's pretty clear. Being saved, knowing God, experiencing His love is not... It's not complicated. It's not hard. God loved you. God died for you on a cross. He paid for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And he offers life and liberty to anyone who will believe. He offers freedom from sin and salvation from sin. If you'll put your faith and your trust in him. And if you never have, I pray that right here in this moment, you would call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would say, Jesus, right now I confess, as John said in this text, you are the Savior of the world. Be the Savior of my soul. Save me from my sins. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Change me. I want to know you. It doesn't have to be those words. It's not like a script. But if you pray something to that effect with sincerity, Jesus promises that he will save you from your sin. It's why he came, it's why he died, to be the propitiation, to be the covering for your sin. Lord, one more time, we come with hearts ablaze with praise, thanking you for loving us and caring for us. And I pray that as we observe communion and baptisms that you would speak to us and that these moments would be special, that they would be significant, that they would mean something. Jesus, we love you and we want to do our best to tell you that. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have a communion cup, you can grab one. If you didn't get one on the way in, you're more than welcome to get one. They're right outside the doors in the lobby. We're going to take just a minute and observe communion together. Um, if you are not a member of our church, I want you to know this isn't a harvest thing. You don't have to be a member of the church to do this. Our only ask is that you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then we would respectfully ask just Sit there and you can observe us. You can watch this for just a moment. Um, but we believe that this is for really Christians to enjoy together, to look at the symbols of Jesus' body and blood that were given for us and to be thankful for those for a minute and to allow it to affect our heart for a minute. I do want to caution you as you do this to do this out of a heart of love, not just for God, but for your fellow brother in Christ. This really was at the heart of what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 11 when he gave the instruction on how to do this. Was the church, they weren't getting along and they were squabbling and they just, they were being unloving. And Paul rightfully said, should you take communion and think about the love that God has for you while you're at odds with them and while you're not loving them? He said, that's not right, that's not fitting. And in this moment, if there is odds, even if you can't make it to that person to make it right with them, make it right between you and the Lord right now and commit to make it right with them because his love for us should push out to other people. Paul writes about this experience and he, and he says this, he said, Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, now let that sink in, 
his friend is betraying him. And even in that moment, he took this bread when he had given thanks and he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. You want to go ahead and open up the other side of that in the juice. Of course, Jesus gives both of the symbols. One is his body that would be broken. One is his blood that would be shed. Both meant to communicate that I will be a sacrifice for you. I will give my all for you. I will be broken so that you can be made whole. I will be consumed so that you can have life. It's what we do when we eat this and we drink this, even though they're in very small portions, admittedly. We consume and then we get life from it. Jesus says, this, that's me. I will be eaten up. I will be consumed so that you can have life. Thank him for that in these moments. Paul continues to write about the blood of Jesus, and he said, after the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped. And here's what he said. He said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you do show the Lord's death until we come. Well, I hope that this week you don't lose the significance of these moments of us in a symbolic way showing the death of Jesus, remembering it, and using it really as fuel in our own personal walk. We're going to take a minute and we're going to end this morning with a few baptisms. Uh, Dave is going to baptize, so I'm just going to step to the side and let him do this. Uh, when he's done, we'll be dismissed, but church, I want to let you know, God loves you and so do I. He loves you more than I do, but I'm trying to show his love as best I can, even to you. So I love you and I'm glad that you're here. Dave, you go ahead. Let's baptize. Every testimony is miraculous. Every baptism, uh, it's a joy and it's special. And I'm honored to be part of these three baptisms today. So right here we have Greg, as if you heard Pastor Mark say at the beginning of the service, and we have his mother, Linda. And uh, all three baptisms have a connection to our academy. And uh, Greg and Linda, his mother, who I'll baptize in a moment, uh, they've been saved for quite some time, both of them around the age 12. But as you could tell, he's a little older than 12 now. So he's ready, um, and he's come to his understanding that he needs to take uh, that, that step and be scripturally baptized. So Greg, I have a question to ask you. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, it is my pleasure to baptize you as a brother in Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the newness of life. As promised, here comes his mom, Linda. 
step this way just a little. All right, this is Linda. And Linda, the same thing, where uh, she was saved at 12 years old, Billy Graham crusade, uh, but has never formally come forward and been baptized by immersion. So I get the pleasure of doing that today. So Linda, I'll ask you the same question. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? Absolutely, yes. Awesome. Well, it is my pleasure to baptize you as a brother in Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the newness of life. Last but not least, we have a young lady who's uh, almost 16 years old, and she is a sophomore in our academy. Her name's Sophia. So as she's making her way down here, I kind of give you a little bit of background on her story because I had the blessing of being a part of it. So uh, she was in, she's my, one of my students. She's in my science class and Bible class last year. And as we were studying the Gospel of John, we spent a good portion of Bible class last year studying the Gospel of John. If you know anything about John's Gospel, part of the reason and his purpose for writing that book is so that we could understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, he is the Savior of the world. And the reason John wants us to understand that is so that we can have eternal life. And so Sophia started to connect the dots, and through John's Gospel and Bible class and chapel and everything that is invested in our academy and having that scriptural, biblical grounding in that school, she started to ask some questions and it was my pleasure to say, Sophia, why don't we get pizza one day? You come to my classroom and let, let's, let's talk. Let's talk about some through, uh, through some of those questions. And we did and it is my honor and privilege to be here with her today. So I get to ask you, Sophia. Sophia, have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? Awesome. Well, I get to baptize you not only as your favorite teacher, but your brother in Christ. All right, come on, turn this way. All right, cross your arms. I get to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the newness of life. I love you. Love you. All right, that was awesome. Thank you very much, and you're dismissed.